My firm was involved in waste. We were waste handlers, waste traders, cosmologists of waste. I traveled to the coastal lowlands of Texas and watched men in moon suits bury drums of dangerous waste in subterranean salt beds, many millions of years old, dried out remnants of a Mesozoic ocean. It was a religious conviction in our business that these deposits of rock salt would not leak radiation. Waste is a religious thing. We entomb contaminated waste with a sense of reverence and dread. It is necessary to respect what we discard. I saw a man on the Via della Spiga standing in front of a mirrored column smoothing his hair. Running both hands over his hair and the way he did it, the cast of his eyes, the slightly pitted skin, both hands guiding the flow of his hair. This was half a second in Milan one day. It reminded me of a thousand things at once long ago. The Jesuits taught me to examine things for second meanings and deeper connections. Were they thinking about waste? We were waste managers, waste giants. We processed universal waste. Waste has a solemn aura now, an aspect of untouchability. White containers of plutonium waste with yellow caution tags. Handle carefully. Even the lowest household trash is closely observed. People look at their garbage differently now, seeing every bottle and crushed carton in a planetary context. My son used to believe that he could look at a plane in flight, in flight and make it explode in midair by simply thinking it. He believed, at 13, that the border between himself and the world was thin and porous enough to allow him to affect the course of events. An aircraft in flight was a provocation too strong to ignore. He'd watch a plane gaining altitude after taking off from Sky Harbor need sense an element of catastrophe tacit in the very fact of a flying object filled with people. He was sensitive to the most incidental stimulus, and he thought he could feel the object itself yearning to burst. All he had to do was wish the fiery image in his mind, and the plane would ignite and shatter. His sister used to tell him, Go ahead blow it up. Let me see you take that plane out of the sky with all 200 people aboard. And it scared him to hear someone talk this way. And it scared her too because she wasn't completely convinced he could not do it. It's a special skill of an adolescent to imagine the end of the world as an adjunct to his own discontent. But Jeff got older and lost interest in conviction. He lost the paradoxical gift for being separate and alone, and yet intimately connected, mind-wired to distant things. At home we separated our waste into glass and cans and paper products. Then we did clear glass versus colored glass. Then we did tin versus aluminum. We did plastic containers without caps or lids on Tuesdays only. 
Then we did yard waste. Then we did newspapers, including glossy inserts, but were careful not to tie the bundles in twine, which is always the temptation. The corporation is supposed to take us outside ourselves. We design these organized bodies to respond to the market, face foursquare into the world, but things tend to drift dimly inward. Gossip, rumor, promotions, personalities. It's only natural, isn't it? All the human lapses that take up space in the company soul. But the world persists, the world heals in a way. You feel the contact points around you, the caress of linked grids that give you a sense of order and command. It's there in the warbled banks of phones, in the fax machines, and photocopiers, and all the oceanic logic stored in your computer. Bemoan te technology all you want. It expands your self-esteem and connects you in your well-pressed suit to the things that slip through the world otherwise unperceived. No last names, no echoing second thoughts. This is the pact of casual sex. But I told her my last name and it wasn't casual, was it? That's the odd dominant of the piece, that I wanted to reach her, still her breathing, to make her breathless, yes. There was something about Donna that untongue-tied me. Guilt later, feeling Marianne next to me, asleep in the dark. When we disliked each other, usually after an evening out, driving home, feeling routinely sick of the other's face and voice, down to intonation, down to the sparest nuance of gesture, because you've seen it a thousand times and it tells you far too much for all its thrift tells you everything, in fact, that's wrong. When we experienced this, Marianne and I, we thought it was because we'd exhausted our meaning, the force that drives the alliance. Evenings out were a provocation, but we hadn't exhausted anything really. There were things unspent and untold and left hanging, and this is where Marianne felt denied. Marianne in her Big Ten town, raised safely, protected from the swarm of street life and feeling deprived because of it. Privileged and deprived, an American sort of thing. All the scenes she recoiled from when she watched TV, the narrative of, of local crime, we see the body in the street, the lament of the relatives, the suspect doubled over to conceal himself. Marianne could not even watch the detective's hand on the suspect's head 
bending him into the unmarked car. It was all a violence, a damage to the spirit. But she wanted my stories, my things, the fiercer the better. I was selfish about the past, selfish and protective. I didn't know how to bring Marianne into those years. And I think silence is the condition you accept as a judgment on your crimes. She said it was her mother. She said it was two years ago today and that her mother died. And I repeated it for the kids and the kids relaxed a little. I reached back and got a stick of gum from Laney. Two years ago today, and of course Marianne knew this, and we didn't. I didn't. I hadn't kept track. And I felt relieved, and the kids did too, because at least there was a reason. At least it wasn't a thing where the parents act funny and the children learn to make their faces blank. She shone brilliantly. She glowed in her weeping. She smiled, I think. A smile that was a wince, but also a real smile, with her mother in it somewhere. After a while, the kids started to sing. And I was relieved. I was goddamn glad, because I'd sat there thinking I was to blame, or thinking maybe she does it all the time, because how the hell do I know what goes on when I'm not home? And the kids were singing, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. If one of the bottles should happen to fall, 98 bottles of beer on the wall, 98 bottles of beer on the wall, 98 bottles of beer. She looked at me and looked at the road, and the kids kept singing, counting backwards all the way to one as Marianne drove, cried and drove. Sometimes I think the education we dispense is better suited to a 50-year-old who feels he missed the point the first time around. Too many abstract ideas. Eternal verities left and right. You'd be better served looking at your shoe and naming the parts. You in particular, Shay. Coming from the place you come from. This seemed to animate him. He leaned across the desk and gazed is the word, at my wet boots. Those are ugly things, aren't they? Yes, they are. Name the parts. Go ahead. We're not so she-she here. We're not so intellectually chic that we can't test a student face to face. Name the parts, I said. All right. Laces. Laces. One to each shoe. Proceed. I lifted one foot and turned it awkwardly. Sole and heel. Yes, go on. 
I set my foot back down and stared at the boot, which seemed about as blank as a, a closed brown box. Proceed, boy. There's not much to name, is there? A front and a top. A front and a top. You make me want to weep. The rounded part at the front. You're so eloquent, I may have to pause to regain my composure. You've named the lace. What's the flap under the lace? The tongue. Well, I knew the name, I just didn't see the thing. He made a show of draping himself across the desk, writhing slightly as if in the midst of some dire distress. You didn't see the thing because you don't know how to look, and you don't know how to look because you don't know the names. He tilted his chin in high rebuke, mostly theatrical, and withdrew his body from the surface of the desk, dropping his bottom into the swivel chair and looking at me again, then doing a decisive quarter turn and rising and raising his right leg sufficiently so that the foot, the shoe, was posted upright at the edge of the desk. A plain black everyday clerical shoe. Okay, he said. We know about the sole and the heel. Yes. And we've identified the tongue and the lace. Yes, I said. With his finger he traced a strip of leather that went across the top edge of the shoe and dipped down under the lace. What is it? I said. You tell me. What is it? I don't know. It's the cuff. The cuff. The cuff and this stiff section over the heel. That's the counter. That's the counter. And this piece of midships between cuff, the cuff and the strip above the sole. That's the quarter. The quarter, I said. And the strip above the sole. That's the welt. Say it, boy. The welt. How everyday things lie hidden, because we don't know what they're called. What's the frontal area that covers the instep? I don't know. You don't know. It's called the vamp. The vamp. Say it. The vamp. The frontal area that covers the instep. I thought I wasn't supposed to memorize. Don't memorize ideas. And don't take us too seriously when we turn up our noses at rote learning. Rote helps build the man. You stick the lace through the what? This I should know. Of course you know. The perforations at either side of and above the tongue. I can't think of the word. Eyelid. Maybe I'll let you live after all. The eyelets. Yes, in the metal sheath at each end of the lace. He flicked the thing with his middle finger. This I don't know in a million years. The aglet. Not in a million years. The tag or aglet. The aglet, I said. And the little metal ring that reinforces the rim of the eyelet through which the aglet passes. We're doing the physics of language, Shay. The little ring. You see it? Yes. This is the grommet, he said. Oh, man. The grommet. Learn it. Know it. And love it. I'm going out of my mind. This is the final arcane knowledge. 
and when I take my shoe to the shoemaker and he places it on the form to make repairs, a block shaped like a foot. This is called a what? I don't know. A last. My head is breaking apart. Everyday things represent the most overlooked knowledge. These names are vital to our progress. Quotidian things. If they weren't important, we wouldn't use such a gorgeous Latin word. Say it, he said. Quotidian. An extraordinary word that suggests the depth and reach of the commonplace. so crowded, or is that just in my mind? The summer nights, fantastic. It's great to see you, Nick. I'm having one more. Have one more. I wanted to finish the first one and leave, or not finish it and leave. A chance meeting like this, if you run it five minutes longer than it's worth, you ruin the night and the following day. He kept adjusting his glasses. A man alone at a table was moaning in a bummed-out monologue that involved being followed wherever he went, and they were recording his private thoughts, and they were sending the seeing-eye blind to spy on him with their dogs and their pencils and their cups. They were doing this on buses and subways both. Jerry, you ought to go home and play with your kids. When you're 50 or 60, you can come here and think about the past. But he didn't want to go home. He wanted to recite the destinies of a hundred linked souls. The streets swarm that roared in his head. The dead, the married, the move to Jersey. The kid with five sisters who became a safe cracker. The handball ace who's a, who's a chiropractor. The stuck-up blonde in the fifth grade who married a Puerto Rican prize fighter. We, we ought to go up there, Nick. Serious. Take the subway. We'll be there in 45 minutes. We can get dinner at Mario's. I'll make some calls. Get some of the guys. They'll love it. They'll meet us. Serious, man. Come on. Drink. We'll go. His voice carried an urgent logic. He was defensive and a little angry, and about halfway drunk, gripped by the plan and a little angry in advance, wary of the thought that I might not see the beauty and the inevitability of a trip to the Bronx, that I might be unswayed by the power of old time's sake, and he was already sensing the edges of a bitter affront. Come on, serious, we'll take the subway. We'll go see Lofaro, some of the old faces. They'd love to see you, Nick. I didn't want to put him off, to seem outside this or above it. Jerry knew I'd been in correction and then more or less lost to news and rumor, and now here I was, turned out in a tweed jacket, doing a job I liked and looking okay. 
stopped smoking, didn't overdo the drinking, knew a woman with a sexy cello voice, and was probably regularly banging her. Then look at him, nice Catholic boy gone baggy and stale, hates going home, a wife in Jackson Heights and two small kids, and he's lighting one cigarette with the butt of another, and drinks so much he blacks out, and sells commercial time for a radio station at the end of the dial, and all because he's never killed a man. This is a thing we have to do, Jerry said. We'll grab a cab. On me. A man named Jorge started a conversation with the bartender. Jorge wore a headband and looked sexually deranged. I didn't think of these people as regulars exactly. They were denizens. That was the word somehow, from the late Latin. Deep within. That's what they were. Like trapped souls trying to emerge and I began to understand that Jerry came here so he could put aside self-pity and the gnaws of practical worry and be with people who would talk to him in a kind of delusional plain song a run-on voice without ordinary sense or strict meter but coming from deeper inside than he could bear to hear in his own locution the lights dimmed and flickered Jerry was talking to me, and there was a woman with Jorge who was saying something to the bartender about the optimum temperature of beer, and that's when the lights dimmed and flickered and then went out. Jerry was saying, Spur of the moment. I'll make some calls. I'll get some guys. I'll get, what's his name? Ali. This is a thing, my friend, where you don't have the right to refuse. Then the lights went out. The man at the far end of the bar stopped trying to bounce quarters into his shot glass. Someone said, is that the lights? We sipped our stingers, Jerry and I.